Hi, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology, and greetings from Boston, birthplace of the American Revolution. Before we begin, uh, we want to congratulate Barack Obama on his uh, victory for presidency and to congratulate Mick Romney on his hard-fought campaign. And finally, a shout out to Elizabeth Warren, our first female senator elected from the state of Massachusetts. This month, we have a rather exciting podcast for you. First, we'll begin with a panel discussion on a newly emerging concept, the use of size-specific dose estimates in CT. And uh, this month, there are two papers on that, one on uh, using size-specific dose estimates for adults by Dr. McCullough and colleagues from uh, the Mayo Clinic, and the second by Dr. Samuel Brady uh, and colleagues from St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. And joining them on the panel will be Dr. Jim Brink, uh, the uh, professor and chair of the Department of Radiology at uh, Yale University School of Medicine. And Dr. Brink, of course, uh, is the co-director of the uh, Image Wisely uh, campaign. Next, my colleague uh, David Kalmas will be speaking with Yulin Gee on an exciting paper on disruption of the default mode network in mild traumatic brain injury. A mild traumatic brain injury has gotten a lot of attention uh, lately, and I'm sure our listeners will find this discussion illuminating. And finally, Dr. Deborah Levine, senior deputy editor, will speak with Dr. Adriana Blukens on a, a study uh, from the Breast Cancer Screening uh, Expert and Training Center on digital screening mammography superior to screen film mammography in the early detection of clinically relevant cancers, a multicenter study. Uh, we hope you enjoy these uh, discussions and always welcome your comments. Hi, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology. And uh, today I'm joined by uh, three authors of papers related to a new metric, uh, size-specific dose estimates for use in describing radiation dose in CT examinations. Uh, and uh, I want to welcome our three guests. Uh, the first is Dr. Uh, Cynthia McCullough. Uh, who is Professor of Medical Physics and Biomedical Engineering at the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. McCullough. Dr. McCullough will be joined by uh, Dr. Samuel Brady, a staff medical physicist at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in the Department of Radiological Science. Uh, welcome, Dr. Brady. And then rounding out our panel is Dr. Jim Brink, a Professor and Chair of the Department of Diagnostic Radiology at Yale University and co-chair of Image Wisely. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Brink. And let's uh, start our discussion briefly. Uh, Dr. McCullough, uh, you authored a, uh, a manuscript entitled uh, Size-Specific Dose Estimates for Adult Patients Undergoing Body CT. And I think uh, many people aren't really familiar with the term size-specific dose estimates. So uh, can you tell us uh, what's really the problem with using CTDI-VAL and DLP? These come off the machine, and I think a lot of practices have been trying to use them to monitor dose. So why do we need a new metric? That's a really good question. I know people are uh, getting a little tired of all the acronyms and, and lots of things to remember. There, there really isn't a problem with CTDI and DLP in terms of they are correct and they do what they're intended to do. They give us a very good measure of how much radiation the scanner is producing. The, the reason we went with coming up with something new was because of the concern about radiation dose and the large interest in it. The community, and in particular the pediatric community, really wanted to know what their patient's dose was. Don't, they said, don't, don't tell us just what the machine is putting out, but tell us how much of that is being absorbed in our patient, because the truth is that what the patient absorbs is an interaction of not just the machine, but themselves. How big are they? And so 
in medical physics, in, in looking at any piece of equipment, if it's radiographic, floral, mammal, CT, when we measure the radiation coming out of the machine, we often put some sort of phantom in there so that they create scatter, uh, and it's something patient like. But in CTDI, it's a cylinder of acrylic, which mm-hmm. isn't a patient. And so we looked at the, the situation and said, you know, we can convert. If we know what the machine is doing and we know what the object is in the scanner, we can come up with a conversion factor because it, it's going to be, it's going to follow good laws of physics and we can estimate how much dose is absorbed. So this SSDE is all about estimating the patient that we are very intentional with the name. It's a dose estimate for specific size patients. One thing that we, we did in the report, and the report came out of the American Association of Physicists in Medicine, is we came up with these conversion factors. So let's go from CTDI, this machine output parameter, to patient dose. Mm-hmm. Good. Now, Dr. Brady, your study uh, focused on further investigating the AAPM report on size-specific dose estimates, but particularly for uh, pediatric uh, CT implementation. So we heard a little bit about what SSDE is, but what are the different ways uh, that it can be calculated, uh, and then how did you uh, use that uh, in your study? Uh, so that's a great question because that was really the question that we came up with when we we first saw report 204 we read through it was how do we apply this in our clinic and there are multiple ways to approach this if you go through report 204 they outline five specific ways and so i'll quickly step through those the first is you can operate from the uh, the scout plane the planar ct radiograph or the scout view where you then go in and use your electronic calipers and you can measure either the anterior posterior or, or the thickness from the front to back or the lateral thickness of the patient and you can either use those two individual measurements to come up with the conversion factor to then multiply with ctda ball and come up with ssde or as we later demonstrated in our paper if you combine those uh, those measurements either as the sum of the anterior posterior plus lateral or as the, the root of the, multi, of the product of the, the anterior posterior times the lateral, which is a measurement or calculation of effective diameter of the patient, then we found that those two measurements tended to have less variability. And the reasons behind that were really well outlined in Dr. Brink's editorial, which takes into account the nonlinearity of both the AP and the lateral. And by combining those two, it really turns those uh, those measurements re, uh, reverts them back to a linear measurement. And then the final one was using the ICRU 74 data to equate the patient's age to a, gen, a general effective diameter of that patient at that age. And interestingly enough, we then compared that to our population and found that for the most part, the ICRU 74 data did agree, but after a while, uh, after a certain age, it really became very, it became variable, so variable that the the conversion factors were difficult to apply to SSDE. So if I understand this correctly, sort of the shortcut of sort of using the generalized data didn't work, and then of the different methods that you tested, the other four, uh, which were the most reliable? So, you know, really, I guess you're left with what do you have to work with, and if you, if you on a regular basis only acquire, for whatever reason, say a lateral or a anterior-posterior projection for a scout view, then using just those projection data to use your electronic caliper to measure AP or lateral, that will work, and that is fine. I'm not trying to take away from that measurement, but what we found was if you take and combine both the AP and the lateral measurement in either the form of a sum Mm -hmm. or the multiplication of those two and the square root to calculate effective diameter, it took the variability out of the measurement such that if you did the effective diameter on really small people for very large people, it it really took out the variability of the measurement. I see. Now, 
do you think your results are generalizable, or are there particular issues with the pediatric population that make uh, your results specific to this group? I do believe that these these values are generalizable, and that you can apply these measurements uh, to non-pediatric, to adults in, in general, because the conversion factors were generated on a wide variety of phantoms and Monte Carlo simulated body sizes, such that the, the variability built of, the, of patient size is built into the different conversion factors. And so by going in and making the patient-specific measurement of this patient-specific size measurement, then that comes out into the SSD calculation. I really think that's kind of the basis of what SSD is. Okay is trying to promote here, right. taking into that patient size and then take the CTDI, which is non-patient specific, and create a patient specific metric. Now, just one last uh, point. Uh, I, I noticed in your study that for a certain size range, the uh, CTDI ball uh, really mapped very nicely to the SSDE. Do you think that for that given uh, group of pediatric patients, we don't need to do these calculations? You know, that was a very interesting finding, actually, that came out of this. It, it came from the, the almost serendipitous approach where we looked at how we were scanning our patients, and we were using a GE VCT scanner. And depending on the, the scan field of view selection or the bow tie filter selection, depends on how GE calculates CTDI, either with a 16CM phantom and with a 32CM phantom. And by doing it just the way we normally did, applying the Report 204 methodology, we found that for a very small group of our patients using the 16CM Phantom about from up to about 10 kilos, it matched very well with the SSDE calculations. And so when we applied that generally, we found all the way up to about 40 kilos. Hmm. If we applied the 16CM Phantom methodology to calculate CTDI vo volume, everything agreed very well with SSDE. Now, this was a very interesting finding, but we believe generally if you're going to apply SSDE, you really need to apply it across the entire spectrum of your patients. Using the full and we're not necessarily, Yeah, we're yeah. not necessarily advocating that the various different vendors go out and start pigeonholing 16CM phantom for this weight group and 32CM phantom for this weight group, or even worse yet, introducing different size CTDI phantoms. The idea with SSDE is really you can take any size phantom, however it is being currently implemented, either 16 or 32, and take the, that, that output, apply it to the patient-specific size of the patient there on that scanner, and come out with a patient dosimetry metric. Got it. Dr. McCullough, uh, your study looked at adults and uh, you asked a somewhat different question. You were trying to, if I understand it correctly, uh, look at how much of the variability that we saw in a dose in a given group of patients exposed were related to technical difference and how much was related to size. Is that correct? Uh, yes. we. We looked at sort of the flip side of the, the, it is gently that the whole idea is right size, the dose. So in kids, you dial down, but in big patients, you dial up. Uh -huh. And there are a lot of uh, heavier people in the U.S. now, and so we still need the good image quality, right? We still need to uh, make the correct diagnosis, and if we scrimp on the, the scanner output setting, we are doing them a disservice. But with the concern with dose came a lot of commentary that, oh my gosh, we're getting more dose to big patients because the CTDI ball is going up. So there have been Monte Carlo studies and shots that say, yes, the scanner puts out more, but the patient absorbs more you know, in their periphery. So really the dose to their internal organs isn't going up. But those, those data were kind of buried in more of a straight physics literature and not as accessible. So we decided, hey, let's just look at our patient population. And, and what happens when we, when we use automatic exposure control to right-size the dose, what, what does the scanner do? And we clearly showed the scanner takes the CTDI up. 
But what does that mean in terms of what the patient absorbed? And our finding was that for the specific AEC, automatic exposure control settings we used, that even though CTDI went up to give you the image quality you need, their, their size-specific dose estimate was essentially flat. So just because you turn up the scanner uh, output for big patients, they aren't really getting more dose. So, Dr. McCullough, it seems uh, like a very important point because I remember there was a lot of uh, things in the press that suggested that the variability we were seeing in the amount of CTDI vol, which was termed exposure, was suggesting a system out of control, that people were receiving way more radiation than they should be. Uh, and it seems like uh, the results that you have found sort of uh, tends to bracket those concerns substantially. Is that correct? Yeah, and that, that was part of what I wanted to look at and what, I was, uh, what motivated the study. I'm also involved with um, the ACR Dose Registry project, project, and there we want to see systematically what kind of doses are we using in the U.S. So we are putting the real CTI scanner output settings into this big registry, but all the data are going into the same bucket. And so if you just look at that data, you say, wow, look at this range of values, look at the standard deviation, you know, there's variability all over the place. But we have big and little patient sizes all mixed in there. So we had to find a way to unravel how much of that variability was due to patient size and how much was, you know, different practices just choosing to run their scanner differently. And, and how much and, was due to patient size in your study? On average, it's a factor of two. Okay. It, when we look at the data, though, yeah, you see a lot of scatter around the line, and part of that is because for the SSDE measurement, we looked at one anatomic slice. So we sized our patient, if you will, through the liver. Mm -hmm. But the scanner responds to the changes in the patient size everywhere. So somebody with uh, the same liver size measurement as, well, the size of their body at the position of the liver, you know, two people could be the same, but, you know, one has more um, weight around the hips than the other. The one that's heavier in the hips, the scanner is going to go up uh, appropriately, and so there will be variability there just because the weight is distributed differently. Um, so there's actually more variability due to weight than our sort of looking on average showed. Mm -hmm. So this is a, brings up a couple of interesting points. Uh, uh, one is uh, I, I noted that you spent a considerable amount of time in the discussion talking about the different ways that uh, automatic exposure control uh, can occur in different systems and how this might affect the dose and the dose calculations. Uh, so perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that and the implications for that clinically. And hearing you talk, uh, the third part of my complicated question is I, I wonder if do we actually need sort of a SSDE-VAL that accounts for sort of the scan length and the variability there? Okay, well let me first address the automatic exposure control. Yeah. We, we talked in the discussion, there were um, two other studies that looked at um, something like this they didn't really calculate SSDE, that report wasn't out yet, but just how does the patient uh, dose, they made other measures of dose, vary with patient size, and because they used a different scanner model, uh, they had a different result, that dose still went up with bigger patients in their study, though it didn't go up as much as this volume CTDI went up. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason behind that is the different scanners have a different uh, philosophy in how they operate. The, um, the scanner they use was from General Electric and they and uh, some of the other manufacturers say, okay, it doesn't matter what the patient size is, we want the image to have the same noise. And so that scanner will increase the dose more strongly in big patients and decrease it pretty strongly in little patients to try to match the noise across the whole population. Um, the scanner we used is from a different manufacturer, uh, Siemens, and their work and finding when they brought out their product was, you know, we really don't need the same noise in big patients because all the adipose tissue gives a lot of built-in contrast. 
Mm-hmm. And in little patients, well, they're little, and we have tinier structures. They don't have the, the contrast with that. We're not as comfortable going down uh, with the dose as much. We would like the images to be not so noisy there. And so they temper their response in the machine a little bit. They don't go up as much in big people, and they don't go down as much in little people. And so that's our finding. We can't generalize and say, SSD should be and will be the same across all patient sizes. It reflects what your scanner's goal is in adapting the tube current. Mm -hmm. I see. And so do we need some sort of uh, an integrated volume SSDE? that accounts for the different thickness uh, across the volume? Well, now we need to take the step as a community, what do we do with this? And how do we implement it in a standardized fashion? When I saw Dr. Brady's study and uh, talked with him at a meeting, I I recruited him right away to a task group (laughs) that uh, the APM is working on to take the next step, which is let's come up with a standardized way to, to do this calculation so that users aren't getting their own pen and paper and spreadsheets out. And we actually want to propose to, to the manufacturers, their standardization organizations, to DICOM, that the scanner can do this math really easily. And let's put this in the DICOM header and let's make this calculation. And in talking that through, what ought that standard look like, um, there's been pretty good consensus that we just need an average value, though there, the attenuation of the patient varies throughout. We don't need, you know, one percent precision okay. on estimating dose. Got it. And so, a mean over the whole body, or not over the whole body, excuse me, over the scan region. So, if you scan the abdomen, pelvis, what's the mean attenuation there? Um, because we really want to kind of give one dose estimate. I see. Uh, Dr. Brink, uh, and for those of you listening, I, I want to encourage you to look at uh, Dr. Brink's uh, editorial because I think he did a great job in taking this rather complicated information and putting it in some uh, perspective. Uh, how, how does this uh, SSDE work fit in to uh, Image Wisely and to the efforts of the ACR? Image Wisely is all about raising awareness and providing information to a, a broad range of constituents that uh, are affected by medical imaging, ranging from the patients and the public to imaging technologists, imaging physicians, and equipment manufacturers. And SSDE is a big, big step forward with helping us understand what the actual dose is to the patient, respectful of the fact that we still have a ways to go. Um, I tend to believe that that really estimating organ dose is probably the where we want to keep trying to get to because applications vary with respect to the radiosensitive organs that are affected. And the more we can get, the more granular we can get about our dose estimates and thus perhaps extrapolate to risk estimates, the more uh, informed decision-making we'll be able to make when it comes to medical imaging. So the SSDE helps us get past, as Cynthia nicely explained, simply the exposure to actually a, a measure of dose that's specific to the body habitus of the patient being scanned. I think that the um, when we look at the range of constituents that Image Wisely tries to address, I think that these two papers primarily affect uh, equipment manufacturers and, and provide information that's important to equipment manufacturers. Uh, the paper by Dr. Brady, I think, was very important in re- with respect to helping define uh, exactly what are the appropriate measures to estimate patient size, what produces the least variability, so that we can make a more um, practical recommendations to practitioners with regard to estimating size that that is used to uh, estimate or to, to extract the SSDE. But more importantly, I think that actually his conclusion with regard to the uh, size of the phantom relative to the size of the patient probably um, has important implications for manufacturers who are still scratching their heads about 16 centimeters versus 32 centimeter phantom. So my way of thinking, the closer one can get with the first measure, then the, the, the more precise the uh, adjustment uh, will be following a correction fact, application of a correction factor. And so the, his conclusion that the uh, CTDI ball uh, more closely approximated the SSDE for uh, children less than 36 kilograms, which kind of equates to children less than eight years of age based on another table he, or, or graph he showed, 
I think it's an important point for manufacturers to consider. If, uh, if there is any confusion about what is the appropriate phantom to be using, then at least this information provides uh, a more informed um, decision-making with regard to phantom selection. And that's also important for the imaging practitioners to, to understand what uh, for many is still a bit of a black box with regard to this issue of how the phantom diameter affects the dose estimate in, in children. I think that the conclusion uh, by Dr. McCullough with regard to the impact of the method of automatic exposure control also is, is very important. And I, this is particularly near and dear to, to my heart because I, I'm a co-author on the paper that she referenced uh, <laughs> uh, that with the other manufacturer that was done here at Yale. And so I was particularly intrigued by this. And in, in particular, the question that we asked uh, when we did this other study was really a, a question that we didn't know the answer to, which is as you scale, as the tube current scales with automatic exposure control, what is the effect on the internal organs? Because one, I, we, we really didn't know, um, does the dose go up? Is it the stay the same? Or some might even hypothesize that it might go down uh, based on the increased attenuation of the body in, um, uh, in patients who are thicker than other patients. And so to actually have some uh, explanation and, and a, a different conclusion based on different manufacturers' implementation of this technology, I thought was very fascinating. And I thought her explanation was, was, uh, was perfect and, and, and very interesting to, and informative to the manufacturers to, to be aware of what is the implication of their selection of this method, whether it be to allow the tube current to scale to maintain image noise throughout the whole range of body habitus, or whether, as she said, to mute it at the high and low ends. Uh, which then might have a more mm -hmm. soothing effect on the dose to the internal organs. So I found most both papers very informative. I think the the manufacturers have a great deal to learn from that, but secondarily, so do we practitioners, because the more we understand these issues, the better we can work with our patients and our manufacturers to make sure that we're basically all on the same page with regard to dose estimation and automatic exposure control in patients of varying sizes. Well, Dr. McCullough, uh, what do you think about the uh, issue regarding the different size phantoms and the role of the manufacturers uh, in standardizing this? Well, this has been hotly debated, and the, the choice to use the 16CM when you have uh, pediatric patients by some manufacturers was to do exactly what Dr. Brady's study ended up showing, is that you're closer to the real dose if you use the smart phantom in smart patients. But the international standard that's out there that says how to measure this uh, still said if you're in the torso, use 32. So some of the manufacturers stayed with 32. And the worst thing that can always happen in the field is this lack of standardization. And an example of uh, the problem it could lead to is uh, I was told about a story of a sort of a 10, 11 year old child. So pediatric, but as big as most maybe adolescents scanned twice at the same facility, one time on the scanner that referenced 32, the other time on the scanner that referenced the 16. The settings really, if you did the physics and measurements, were the same. The patient really got about the same dose for the two exams. But the CTGI ball differed by a factor of two and a half, and when that information was shared with the parents, there was a huge upset. Oh my gosh, this one of the scanners gave us two and a half times too much dose. So we really realized we can't have two phantoms out there. And then we said, okay, which one ought it be? And because we now have SSDE to take care of the size-dependent uh, issue, we, the revision of the standard that came out that added the sentence that for all patients, no matter what age, to use the 32. So that keeps scanner output on the same benchmark. Everybody's measuring it the same. And then go ahead and adjust for patient size later and we hope that will get rid of this sort of dichotomy that we're living with right now. Uh, it seems to me, and I think Dr. McCullough sort of mentioned this, that sort of the, the next step is to have this metric uh, fall out in the header information. And uh, I was pleased to note that AAPM is active in this. Has ACR taken this on as uh, uh, an important uh, initiative? 
Well, I think the um, the ACR is a co-sponsor of Image Wisely, and at least from the from the advocacy end, meaning or the the social marketing end for Image Wisely, unquestionably, this is important information. I may defer back to Dr. McCullough with regard to the dose index registry and implications for for that, which is also an, an important ACR initiative as well. Cynthia, you want to comment? Sure. We have been talking dose index registry people, and because they're anxious to get this rolled into the registry and so this year, pretty early this year, they have already started uh, having sites send their, their CT radiograph, their scout, their topogram, whatever it's called on their scanner. So they altered their software, um, some uh, co-authors uh, or some investigators from Duke provided us some data on their thresholding method. And so they're taking that, that radiograph and estimating size on any site that will send that data yeah. so that we can start calculating this in the registry. So it's happening, but uh, not yet ready for prime time. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it's happening on the ACR's software. Right. And we need to now back it all the way up so it happens on the scanner software. Okay, this has uh, been a very uh, uh, informative discussion. I have one last question, and this is sort of more from uh, the editorial perspective, and that, you know, we still see a lot of papers describing uh, uh, interventions and uh, dose lowering, uh, referring to effective dose. Uh, and uh, we've, we've heard of sort of the limitations about effective dose from many sources, but I want to ask our panel if you think that there, there is a role for effective dose uh, in biomedical publications, and, and, and what would that be? Uh, who wants to take a crack at that? Dr. McCullough? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that. Effective dose is a concept that is important and helps us when we cross modalities. What we really care about is organ doses, um, what they really got. But if you have a nuclear medicine exam and now you've got bladder dose compared to um, CT exam, you're going to have a list of, you know, 13 organs from each exam and somebody's going to try to compare them and you've got a pretty complex set of comparisons. Clearly the CT to the chest and then bladder dose, but, um, you know, so how do you combine all that information? An effective dose is a tool that combines those with different organs Oh, and weights them according to, gosh, the breast is more sensitive than the bladder, so we'll give a little more weighting. And so it's a really big picture to compare an exam on one modality to a different type of exam in a different body part, another modality. But it breaks down, even if you have the best software, Monte Carlo, and can predict the organ doses to a patient with great precision, effective dose still is inaccurate because those weighting coefficients that you combine it with, those are derived from a population of both genders and all ages. I see. So, so you've got Mrs. Jones and she's a female and you say, well, let's weight the breast. Well, that weighting factor is already an average over men and women. So it doesn't really apply to Mrs. Jones. I see. So that's why we don't want it to be used in conjunction with any given patient, but more just different exams. Dr. Brady, any thoughts about when we should be uh, reporting effective dose? Well, I think this comes down to why so many people equivocate between CTDI volume and effective dose and why you get a fair amount of publications out there and people are, are defaulting to CTDI volume. They say they're patient dose mm -hmm. and dose reduction based on machine output. And I think this gets back to the idea of SSDE and how beneficial this will be for us going forward. For us in the pediatric realm, and you know, image gently, this is this is wonderful. Mm -hmm. This is also eye-opening because for so many years, if you go out and you say, "Oh, our our patient population at say the 20 kilo range had a CTDA ball of a one or two or three milligram," well, that's actually 50% wrong. You're <laughs> way underestimating it because in mo most because of most manufacturers choice to use uh, CTI, calculate CTI vol based on 32 centimeter phantom, they were just, for all intents and purposes, wrong. 
And this is where SSD really fills in. And it's able to take out the controversial conversation of, well, if we're using effective dose, does it, does it apply to my patient population? Does it apply to my patient on the scanner? Because just as Dr. McCollin stated, it doesn't. But now we can say we have CTGI-VOL, which is wonderful. It gives us the dose output, but we can actually apply it to that specific patient and get a much better approximation. And as I said, it was eye-opening because we found that in many respects, the patient dose, as it were, is actually going is up compared to where we've looked at it historically just because now we're getting a truer measurement of what they're receiving. Good. Dr. Brink? Any final thoughts for us on uh, where the term effective dose and that metric should fit in biomedical publications? You know, I agree with Cynthia that it's a very useful uh, tool when it comes to comparing apples and oranges, comparing one modality to another. I also think that sometimes it can give us a, a ballpark estimate when we're practicing clinically to have some sense. I wish to liken it to the, to, to the pharmacologic industry when we think about very commonly, if we're looking at drug doses, we think about what is the volume we would give, how many cc's of a drug would we give to a 70 kilogram person just to, to get us <laughs> in the ballpark. But then we would, of course, we would never give that, uh, that dose to a patient presuming that they were 70 kilograms without actually measuring how, how their weight and adjusting it to that person. So uh, I don't think it's all that different than what we, what we encounter when we're giving drug doses that, again, oftentimes we benchmark things against 70 kilograms because that's sort of the standard size person. But we would never actually administer a dose unless we, we tailored it to the actual patient. And that's kind of the same issue when it comes to dose estimation. The other thing with effective dose is it's moving out of dose, real energy in tissue, to risk. Right. And so that's a, that's a different concept. And the, the radiation biology and the epidemiology is always in flux. And so they've had three different sets of these weighting factors over time already and they'll continue to change and so the risk associated with a certain dose is still a, a bit uh, well unknown we know it's mm -hmm. low um, but people will argue about if it's this weighting factor or that weighting factor so staying away from effective dose takes us out of that saying we need to do the exam let's do the exam as well as we can with as low as doses exam we can and, and document it but whatever the risk is, it is. And people will continue to do research and sort that out. If mm -hmm. we all just talk dose and we all optimize to dose, we, we stay out of that controversy. Thank you. And I want to thank our panel participants, uh, Dr. McCullough, uh, Brady, and Brink, for a, a very stimulating discussion. Uh, thank you very much for your participation. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for your interest in having us. Hello, my name is David Kalmas. I'm Deputy Editor for Neuroradiology. Today we are joined by Yulin Gee, who is Associate Professor of Radiology at NYU, and he is here to discuss his paper entitled Default Mode Network Disruption in Mild Traumatic Brain Injury, and I guess we'll call it Mild TBI for today's discussion. Dr. Gee, welcome. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for this uh, podcast invitation to discuss our recent paper in radiology. Sure. And, and could you give us a, just a, a brief discussion or, uh, about what you did and what you found? Yes. Uh, in this paper, you know, we found in patients with mild traumatic brain injury, or MTBI, the intrinsic or default mode functional brain networks were significantly disrupted shortly after injury. And such brain network connectivity changes correlated with uh, neurocognitive dysfunction and also uh, post-traumatic uh, symptoms in these patients. We used a technique called a resting state functional MRI in this study. And this technique is often used to identify functional brain networks. So we think our findings suggest that uh, this technique can be used as important tool in addition to the conventional MRI for detecting subtle brain uh, injury that is not actually apparent on conventional MRI imaging. So all so these actually, patients had normal, normal uh, standard MRI imaging? Yeah, in all patient cohorts, they all have normal MRI standard imaging. And I think also, more importantly, these findings will help actually better understand the underlying disease pathophysiology of post-concussive syndrome, which is still poorly understood so far. And could you tell us the, the exact brain areas, uh, areas of the brain that were affected and whether it makes physiologic sense in terms of what you saw in the clinical exams? 
So the, we are uh, interested in the uh, default mode network regions, which actually involves the uh, posterior cingulate uh, cortex, uh, precanious uh, inferior parietal, and the media uh, prefrontal cortex regions. So these regions uh, are together called the default mode network. And uh, we found uh, the very significant uh, you know, change of the patterns of this uh, uh, functional connectivity in these regions. And the, these not, regions are not necessarily uh, are seen uh, commonly on the conventional you know, CT or MR images in the, for example, the moderate or severe uh, TBI, which often involves, for example, the inferior temporal lobe and also the inferior uh, frontal lobe. And that's because of sheer injury as compared to, to these patients that had, had less severe trauma? Yeah, less severe trauma. We didn't see the lesions even in that, uh, you know, commonly, uh, the common, you know, site of the uh, brain injury uh, in the inferior temporal lobe and the inferior frontal lobe. But uh, this, uh, I think it's probably a different mechanism in the mild traumatic brain injury. And this uh, structure, you know, should have kind of subtle uh, injuries, not as uh, obvious as the moderate and uh, the severe TBI. Sure, and you image these patients early after injury, less than two months after injury, is that right? Yes, all the patients is the last two months, and the, the mean, uh, the time interval between the uh, injury and the MRI is 22 days. Have you had the opportunity since then to do any longitudinal studies? That is, do these changes disappear over time and correlate with improvement in, syndrome, in the uh, syndrome? Yeah, this is a very good uh, question. Actually, the longitudinal studies are definitely needed to further uh, evaluate whether such findings uh, you know, can serve as a biomarker to monitor disease progression or the recovery in these patients. But uh, unfortunately, we don't have enough data right now to, to show the longitudinal changes, but that's definitely going to be our next step. And are there, there any therapeutic interventions that, that people are using to, to change the course of of, of MTBI? Yeah, we know, I mean, so in MTBI right now, there's no effective t treatment uh, for the post-concussive syndrome. I mean, so the, the only treatment is uh, aimed at, uh, only aimed at easing the uh, you know, specific symptoms that the individual has. So uh, our study, I think, uh, uh, this is partially due to the poorly understood mechanism, as I said before. So uh, given the important role of the default mode network in brain cognitive uh, functions, I think all studies may provide insight into the underlying mechanism of this uh, the uh, syndrome, and potentially these findings uh, have some implications for a new uh, therapeutic strategy targeting brain network restoration or cognition recovery. Well, now that you've identified these specific brain regions that are affected, are there other advanced MR imaging techniques, spectroscopy, diffusion-based metrics, uh, uh, flow, blood flow, are there any other of these parameters that you might think would correlate with, uh, with patient symptoms? Yeah, this is another good question. So uh, actually, there are several uh, studies from you know, several groups, uh, including ours, already um, showed uh, there is uh, the, uh, the subtle white matter, the uh, injury uh, using diffusion uh, tensor imaging. And they found kind of like uh, the uh, decrease uh, the uh, fractional um, anisotropy, which means there is uh, a subtle the microstructural damage in the white matter. And also, all previous studies uh, showed uh, there is a thalamic injury in mild traumatic brain injury too. So I think, uh, in general, the even if mild the traumatic brain injury, it can be a diffuse uh, process. Yeah, given the, the the respect of the kind of the lot of you know, regions already involved and be showing abnormal. Do you expect that? that the current uh, default mode network technique would be potentially more sensitive than those other techniques? The, the key issue of MTBI is that the underlying mechanism, uh, mechanism is poorly understood. And most patients, as you mentioned, have normal the conventional imaging, for example, on the CT and the MRI. So the, that's why you know, people try to use different or more advanced techniques to uh, to target all the, the you know the problems, 
And the default mode network is very well established and most reliable, uh, the functional network during the rest, I mean, of the resting brain. So that's why we choose this one to see if this network is infected. And also, this default mode network is have uh, several key cognitive functions, including the uh, consciousness and uh, and other behavioral uh, the functions. Uh, but little, very little is studied about default mode network in MTBI. Many people are concerned about brain injury in children, especially related to sports. Uh, is this technique tolerated well in the pediatric population? And and how old were, were the patients that you studied? The patient is 30-something, uh, the, the mean age. It's not uh, the, uh, the uh, pediatric uh, population. It's definitely there is, uh, you know, the interest, and uh, actually it's a growing interest in, uh, in our country, I think, uh, to uh, recently, not only from, you know, traditional trauma like the car accident, uh, but also, you know, the professional the athletes and like the football players and also the military, the population coming back from the Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and also, as you mentioned, the uh, the, uh, the children, so who suffered this uh, syndrome. So the 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 resting state, the uh, functional MRI, uh, is based on the blood oxygen level dependent or the ball technique, and measures the baseline, the signal fluctuation, and of the neuronal activities of the resting brain. So it has uh, draw, actually recently draw a lot of attention because it can evaluate the critical functional brain networks which have never been successfully assessed in vivo in the past. So in contrast to the regular task-related board functional MRI, this resting state functional MRI does not require any task performed during the scan. It takes about you know, five and a half minutes only. And I think it's probably perfect for the uh, you know, pediatric population. And patients just need to lie down in the scanner and close their eyes. And also the beauty of this technique is it is simple and uh, but robust for the, uh, the brain functional networks. Was there um, anything else that you would like to, to talk about in regards to your paper? So basically we found uh, the, uh, there is decreased uh, uh, functional connectivity in for, you know, in the posterior part of the uh, default mode network. And this probably related uh, directly to the injury. And also, interestingly, we found uh, there is a significantly increased uh, functional connectivity in the anterior part of default mode uh, network. So we think uh, such uh, increased connectivity in the anterior region may be a sign of uh, immediate counteraction of the uh, decrease of the posterior connectivity after injury. It's so a this findings, compensatory mechanism, is that? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, these findings uh, probably together may suggest the anterior and posterior default mode network nodes are intrinsically associated and are also are highly uh, compensatory in their functions after the mild injury. All right. Well, I, I greatly appreciate you joining us on today's podcast, and, and congratulations on your paper, and we look forward to future publications from your outstanding group. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Debbie Levine. I'm the Senior Deputy Editor of Radiology, and I'm here today speaking with Adriana Blukens, who is a fifth-year resident of radiology at the uh, Department of Radiology in St. Elizabeth Hospital in Tilburg, the Netherlands, and is also a PhD student at the University of Amsterdam. And she was lead author on an article that's coming out in the December issue of Radiology, uh, Digital Screening Mammography Superior to Screen Film Mammography in the Early Detection of Clinically Relevant Cancers, a multi-center study. So welcome, Dr. Blukens. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about your study, what you did, and what you found? Uh, yes, of course. We uh, started the study um in anticipation of the nationwide transition from uh, conventional mammography to digital mammography in our screening program, and therefore a few pilot studies were set up just to test um, how it would work, digital screening, um, and also the organizational consequences of it. And with those data, we did um, a few analyses and uh, also looked at the performance, of course, of digital mammography. And what we found was um, 
that there was an increase in uh, detection uh, for uh, invasive carcinoma and uh, DCIS. It was both uh, significantly. And we had a, um, a large study population of uh, more than a million. So there was a possibility for us to um, subdivide the, the lesion types. And we could also see um, subtypes, for example, subtypes of DCIS, which we were particularly interested in. So um, that's basically what we did. So can you tell us a, just a sentence or two about the actual results of your study? Of course. We found that uh, digital mammography depicted significantly more uh, DCIS um, and invasive carcinoma as well, and this most often when it was associated with microcalcifications. Um, great. So your study uh, accrued patients in the time period that you first started digital mammography, 2003 to 2007, and so accrual ended about five years ago. How do any of your practices differ today? And if you did your study now, do you think your results would be similar? Yeah, I think so, because um, it it's not that long ago. Um, there is uh, one difference with the uh, current practice that we, um, we included the first months of digital screening in our study. And you know that um, when you first deal with uh, a new modality, you have to uh, get used to it. And so a result in this period might be a little bit different. We saw, for example, an increase in, in uh, recall rate, an impressive increase in recall rate in those first few months. So apparently the radiologists were uncertain uh, in that time. So that's uh, a difference. But as you can see that the study period was uh, for four years and um, uh, except for the first month, uh, you can compare the results of that time from um, the results in screening we see now after the transition. And about what percent of mammography uh, now in 2012 is digital in your country? Um, we're all digital now. Digitization first took place at the, in the hospital setting and our screening program is digital since 2010. Okay, great. Now, most of our listeners are from the United States, and in the United States, we do mammography slightly differently than what was done in some of the communities in your study, in that we, um, at every screen, take two views of each breast, um, and we recommend mammography yearly uh, for the most part, whereas in your study, things were slightly different. Not everybody had two views of the breast at every screen. Um, how do you think that uh, alters the results of how you in the Netherlands and how we in the United States practice mammography? Yeah, of course, it is a different uh, difference. In that time, we did not perform a craniocaudal view in all cases. It was just when indicated, for example, in dense breasts or uh, when uh, a lesion was found on the MLO view alone but now we see that it is uh, it is changing also here but in the time of the study it was not we were not performing two views in, at all times so that really is a difference there are some other differences uh, of course between our program and uh, for example screening in the united states so we we always have to be uh, cautious or at least uh, keep these differences in mind when we compare results yes okay great and you found that uh, the age of recalled women uh, in your screen film group was different than that of the digital mammography group. And similarly, when you looked at uh, in situ cancers, uh, ages were slightly, significantly different, but only slightly different. Um, what do you make of these small uh, but significant differences in that the digital mammography group tended to have uh, more findings at a slightly younger age? Yeah, it was true we found a significant difference, although it was a difference of only a couple of months, uh, I recall. It is a difference that um, in the digital group, women were younger, that's true. And as we think at uh, cancer involvement, you see it'll increase with age. So from that perspective, you would say that um, the cancers found or the, in the digital group might be even a little uh, underestimated. 
if you if you look at that from that perspective. Uh, on the other hand, it's only a couple of months, so I don't think it will be uh, an actual difference. And if it is, it's an underestimation of detection in the digital group. So can you expand that when you say an underestimation? What do you mean? Oh, I mean that uh, when you see that the older uh, a woman is, uh, the bigger the chance of getting cancer. So an older population would have uh, more cancer than a younger population. So if the digital group uh, appears to be younger, we would expect to find less cancer. Uh -huh. And yet you kind of found the opposite in that the digital group, you actually found more cancers. Of course, you also had more recalls. Given that one of the so-called harms of mammography is patient anxiety, how do you put this recall rate into perspective of more found cancers? Because an increased recall rate will uh, also increase uh, or lower the positive predictive value. So there is an uh, unnecessary anxiety among the women that are recalled. So it's important to, to discuss. We still see, however, a quite high positive predictive value uh, of, of 15%. So I think that uh, should be uh, acceptable. You see that our uh, recall rate increased significantly, but it still was only 2.4% in the whole screening population. So when you look at other screening programs, it's still very low. But it was, it was a significant increase, definitely, for our program. So that also means um, uh, more unnecessary recalls and a lower recall, uh, a lower positive predictive value in that. And yet your positive predictive value of, uh, of 15, 15.6 in your paper percent seems pretty reasonable. I would think most women, if they knew uh, that it was actually that high, um, they would be willing to come in and have invasive testing. Did you find that women in your population uh, found that to be acceptable? Well, we did not have an evaluation of participants at, at this point, so I, I can't speak for them. But um, in, in my opinion, it is still a, a very good rate, a very good uh, result. Okay, great. And then with the screen film mammography, you found that 19.6% of recalled lesions were based on microcalcifications without an associated density, while in digital mammography, 31% were based on microcalcifications alone. So we're, we're seeing obviously more microcalcifications with digital mammography, which is what we would expect from other studies. Do you think we should be thinking about microcalcifications differently uh, in digital mammography than in screen film? Well, first of all, we could see this as a, as a great benefit as um, uh, DCAS and invasive carcinoma with an intraductal component is associated with microcalcifications. So that's one of the great benefits of mammography. Um, I think that's the main reason that digital mammography scores that well in comparison to screen film mammography. Uh, but you have to keep in mind that you see a lot more calcifications, uh, and of course not all of them are uh, malign or malignant. So you have to be careful and you have to try to interpret the calcifications you see and the surely benign calcifications, for example, uh, milk of calcium or other typical benign uh, forms of calcifications, you should uh, not recall. So you have to be more careful than uh, using screen film mammography, I suppose. All right, and then in your manuscript, and I think this is a very interesting point, um, you mentioned that overall the histologic grade distribution of DCIS didn't differ between the two modalities. I'm wondering if you could put that into context for our listeners. Well, when we look at the results of our studies, we saw a uh, tremendous increase in the detection of DCIS when using digital mammography. And as others, we were afraid that uh, there was a, a difference in, in subtype of DCIS in this case. As we all know, that um, not every type of DCAS is is, is the same. It's a, it's a heterogeneous uh, disease, and there are some indolent lesions and there are some aggressive lesions. And we were afraid that with uh, digital mammography, we would find more um, low-grade DCAS, which are most often indolent lesions, and which you might 
see as the most important candidate for overdiagnosis. So uh, we wanted to see how this distribution would be in digital mammography compared to screen film. Uh, and we found a similar distribution, so not an increase in uh, low-grade lesions, uh, which what we were uh, afraid of. Great. So along that point, uh, do you think a woman with low-grade DCIS found on mammography after a biopsy should be treated differently than one with high-grade DCIS? And here I'm just asking for your own uh, impression because obviously that's not something studied in your paper. Well, in my opinion, I think you should. I think tailored therapy is best. So an individual, an individual therapy plan. So you have to look at uh, comorbidity, patient's age, things like that. And then you have to uh, integrate the, the DCIS subtype to see whether a radical therapy, which is usually used in high-grade DCAS and invasive carcinoma, is um, appropriate in this specific case. So, I think yes. <laughs> Great, thank you. Wonderful. You you were very articulate. This was just wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> 